0: Welcome to Hunting Land. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe baya Joined this week again with Clint Flowers. And Clint, you had a heck of an opening weekend, man. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, we uh got my seven-year-old in tow, and he's been on the hunt. He's gotten really into it this year, and he wanted to make sure we took advantage of every opportunity we had. We got a doe the first hunt, so we filled our sausage quota, and then wanted to go back to the same blind yesterday and i didn't expect much since we had shot it the day before but we had a very mature very heavy uh in weight buck come out right at dusky dark and we got him too so he's he's had a big big thanksgiving week already
0: yeah are you talking about mason or are you talking about the deer that joker was heavy <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah he came in over
0: 230 pounds which is the
1: heaviest deer we've ever taken off the property and that's that's the a big boy for south alabama
0: that's awesome i you know i was up at your place a couple of weeks ago and there was so many acres on the ground i bet you that deer was just loaded up with him I mean, <laughs> he's putting on some some fall fat man
1: without a doubt he uh, we had a lot of young bucks in the field with him and when he walked out it looked like a big beef cow walked out of the woods
0: <laughs> that's awesome did you make a good shot yeah i think he was probably about 190 yards and he didn't take a step that is awesome. I imagine your boy was fired up after seeing, seeing that. And that that's one of the things that you and I've talked a lot about is just getting your kids into hunting and Mason is, is eat up with it. As I've, as I've seen a kid be, what, what was your secret, man? How did, how'd you stoke that fire in him?
1: You know, we started trying to get him outside when he was about, or outdoors with me, hunting wise, as much as we could about three in it, I, I just wanted him to want to go. I, it wasn't about to have a successful hunt in terms of harvest or anything else. It was just really wanting him to go out there and have fun. So obviously at that age, he wasn't getting up at 4.30 in the morning to go with me. So it was all afternoon hunts. And we'd go out to the blind shooting house about three thirty, four o'clock, and, you know, late enough that we're usually spooking deer out of the field. And he gets to see some action, but stay out there an hour or two and just kept it fun for him, you know, all the snacks he could handle. And didn't fuss at him about being loud or anything like that. Just let him have fun.
0: And, I bet that uh you know, I bet that's tough, you know, for you you just to kinda you're just making an investment at that point and because you're having to give up on really your ex not your experience, but you're not hunting the way you know you need to hunt at that point. And I imagine it just takes being really aware of that before you ever ever even go was it ever tough for you you know you get one of those real nice days and you know it's going to be a lot of deer moving and you're like he's like all right i'm ready to go (laughs) you just have to have to roll out
1: yeah and that's one reason we never i never went out too early with him because i knew his attention span was going to be an hour to two hours so i wasn't dragging him out there at two o'clock in the afternoon and wanting him to stay till dark so you know it was just about keeping it fun i'd never want him at that young age, you know, now that we're, he's getting a little older, we're trying to be a little bit more disciplined. And, and honestly, he's, he's making me hunt harder than I want to some days now. But when he was younger, it was just about keeping it fun for him so that he would want to come back. I never wanted him to feel like, Oh, you know, I got to go hunting with that again and sit there and be quiet and be still and be cold and, and not move like a statue for two or three hours. Now he wants to do that. But at that young age, I just wanted to keep it fun. I wanted him to want to go with me. So that's what we focused on.
0: Yeah, that's cool, man. Because I I didn't even get to start going hunting until I was about eight for that reason. Because folks that took me knew that I wasn't going to be able to sit still or be quiet. And so they they just didn't even take me. And I mean, that did kind of work in my favor because I had an older brother that was getting to go and and I wasn't getting to go. So that made me want to go worse. But if I hadn't had that experience, then it's just awesome that he's getting to have all this, really this experience and, you know, building up his knowledge and getting to see these things. uh, And you've had the patience to not push him too hard. And and now he's going to really start to get into it. I did, I've done the same thing with my wife, getting her into it. It's just, if you make it all about them, then they have fun. And if they have fun, they want to go do it again that's uh that's cool man and uh, was that the first buck you've taken with him
1: no but it's definitely the biggest he just by way of circumstance get didn't get to take wasn't with me at all last year when i when i harvested a deer just always had a birthday party or something and and the days he was with me it just didn't connect so now we've gotten two in two days so he's uh the fire is renewed
0: that's good man that's good
1: we got duck season opening this weekend. So he's pumped up about that too. So he's after two deer in two days, he's got very high expectations on the ducks.
0: Well, you know, you're talking about duck season. That's always one of the battles for deer hunters if we've got the option to do both, you know, you want to go duck hunting every morning you can, but some days you'd be really well served to be in a deer stand at the right time and this week's show is going to be all about that it's it's really digging into the science behind when and why deer move and that's going to be coming at you a little bit later in the show before we get there though we're going to check in with timber Mart south for this week's current timber prices segment right after you hear from this week's show sponsor and this week's show is brought to you by first south farm credit what does the farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go relax or enjoy the outdoors. Whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800. 800- Nine five five one seven two two. They are an equal housing lender. Joining us today is Jonathan Smith, the executive director of Timber Mart South for this week's current timber market prices update. Jonathan, welcome back to hunting land, man. What state are we going to be covering today? Good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. Today, let's talk about North Carolina. All right, North Carolina. Well, are things any brighter in the Tar Heel State than they are the rest of the South wide?
2: Unfortunately, I don't really have any great news to report of things going up. I guess no news is good news. Things have been relatively flat, uh, especially quarter over quarter. If you look at uh, pine prices in North Carolina, pine salt timber's been hovering around 23 bucks a ton. Uh, Chipping saw around 16 and pine pulpwood around 10.
0: Those numbers, Jonathan, are, are you say they're relatively flat? What does that mean in terms of a per- per- percentage? I mean, are we off? Are we down a little down, or up a little or are they right on kind of just holding steady?
2: The change quarter over quarter has been less than a dollar on all of those products. Pine saw timber is down about four and a half dollars year over year, uh, but that was really more of a, a longer term market correction just bringing North Carolina pine salt timber prices really in line with what the rest of the Southwide's doing.
0: And for folks that are listening, we should have covered this to begin with, what quarter are we talking about here? What what results uh, are we publishing today?
2: So these are third quarter
0: 2020. Well, is any is the news any better with uh, with
2: hardwood? Hardwood's about the same. You know, your hardwood salt, mixed hardwood, salt timber is still your leader in the woods, if you will. Almost $25 a ton. Uh, and then hardwood pulpwoods right around six. So a little discount to pine pulpwood in North Carolina.
0: Jonathan, do you expect to see any change, you know, with effects from the pandemic that that we're in? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things are changing in our society, you know, I mean, with regards to schools and the amount of products that are being shipped. And, and also we got a new president uh, most likely coming into office. Do you expect to see any differences in the way we're consuming these types of products based on those two factors?
2: You know, expectations, uh, you know, it's it's kind of pie in the sky, but, uh, you know, you've got a fair amount of uh, expansion uh, in the small log market in your pulpwood size material uh, in North Carolina. This past quarter, there were announcements of Enviva doing an expansion in Garrysburg, uh, and then Eggerwood Wood Products announced a particle board startup, uh, both of those using smaller uh, diameter materials. Uh, but then you look at the saw log side of things. Klausner over in uh, Klausner two over in Enfield, North Carolina, filed for bankruptcy a couple of quarters back, and they're still in dispute. So what's going to come out of that? If you look at that, the end use, we're using a lot of boxes, a lot of uh, container board. Uh, we're using a lot of that shipping products around during the pandemic because people aren't getting out and doing a lot of in-person shopping. So that's probably the opportunities right now as long as our uh, we're not doing as much in-person as long as we're in the pandemic
1: mode. And to get in a little bit more detail on that, uh, that's brown paper, which we're talking about pine pulpwood there.
2: That is correct, yes. So that that will affect more of your pine pulp wood than your hardwood pulp wood, which is your printing and writing paper
1: products. Jonathan, on the log side of things, our export market has been a little bit uh, depressed here the last few years. I mean, how do you think things are going to look in the future? Are we going to be waiting to see or hope or anything definitive out there?
2: I think it's probably a, a wait to see and be hopeful. Uh, I will say for North Carolina specifically, um, they had a fairly strong export market and so seeing where that goes with the uh, next presidential administration will be interesting to see and will probably have an impact on what happens in that timber market.
0: Well, Jonathan, thanks for giving us the uh, timber market update for North Carolina. I know we're going to be covering, uh, Covering Virginia uh, coming up on the next show, and then we'll be rounding it back out with Alabama. Um, if folks want to get a subscription to Timber Mart South and stay up to date on all the prices, uh, news, and market trends, how can they do that? Please look for us
2: on our, our website at timbermartsouth.com. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us, we cover from uh, eastern Texas to Virginia. We cover 11 states in the southeast. And we divide our states up into two regions per state, so we have 22 regions. And we look forward to the opportunity to help you get good information so that you can make the best management decisions and uh, work with your local consultants.
0: Well, Jonathan, it was good to have you back on. We'll look forward to having you on again. Uh, until the next time, stay safe out there, man. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Yes, sir. Sounds good. Thank you.
0: All right, guys, I want you to do something for me. If you would like to get the podcast emailed to you each week, all you have to do is take out your smartphone and text the word HUNTING to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word HUNTING to 773 770 or three seven seven to join our email list and we will send you the new show as soon as it is available this week. But let's get into this week's content. Clint, doesn't sound like, like you need uh, much help choosing the best time to hunt deer judging by your results. One time we can definitely agree on I think the best time to hunt a deer is opening weekend. That just seems to be a good time no, no matter what's going on. But over the years for me, I've had my best seasons when I was able to just spend as much time as I could uh, hunting. And as I've gotten older and and become a parent, that freedom in that schedule is not what it used to be. So this week's show, we're going to talk about some of the science behind predicting the best time to hunt deer, based on the season, based on the weather, the time of day, the moon phase. To help us do that, we're going to be talking to Jeff Quarter. He's the CEO of Huntwise. Jeff, welcome to Hunting Land, man. Uh, before we get into the show, tell us a little bit about Huntwise.
3: Yeah, so Huntwise has been a project that I've been working on for the last three years. Our parent company, Sportsman Tracker, um, has been around since 2015. Um, we originally had an app called Hunt Predictor. And, you know, right when the apps were getting big, you had a few. It wasn't like the craze they are now, but we were kind of the first app that brought in brought in multiple factors into a hunt, you know, before it was kind of the lunar calendar and, and that's kind of what what people went by. And so we did a lot of research in the early days and, and knew that more than just the moon played into the hunt. And so we introduced this like multi-factor variable formula to help whitetail hunters specifically. And so I've, I've learned a lot over the, the last five years, I'm not an expert by any means. We partner with some experts, but I've learned a lot. And so we've grown, Huntwise has grown over the last couple of years into mapping and to predicting movement with different algorithms for different species.
0: I love the fact that you guys are bringing in multiple variables. It's one of the things that I've paid attention to over the years, and not so much in recent years just because of the lack of time, but when I had the time, I would go back and I would actually catalog all of my game camera photos. And what I would do first is bring down when I was seeing deer in the daylight. And then I would further filter when I was seeing mature deer in the daylight and try to notice patterns between what was going on with wind direction, wind speed, you know, what was going on with the barometer, uh, what time of year it was, all these different factors that maybe could start to you know, stack the deck in my favor. I had some mixed success doing that. Uh, definitely had some times where I got it just right. And then other times where I was going, hmm, I wonder what I got wrong. It, it's very interesting to me and my, my nerdiness to get into these different variables. So what are some of those? I mean, when I think about best times to hunt deer, like I mentioned earlier, I, I think, hey, opening weekend. That's a great time. Um, If we're trying to pick the best time to hunt deer in relation to the season, you got any data behind that?
3: Kind of a loaded question because there's a lot of things that go into it. There's hunting pressure. There's weather variables. There's uh, the deer, how much um, you hunt as well as neighbors hunt. I think in in going through all this, we recently partnered with Jeff Sturgis and, and I've just learned so there's so many different pieces and then there's things that trump those pieces all the time. So you th- like you said, you think you have it once um, or you think you understand it and then something different happens. Our formula is based on the fact that deer feed roughly five times a day. Okay. And we are determining, we look five days previous and 15 days out. Now, the further you, you get out, the more weather can be, unpredictable maybe 15 days out it's a 15 to 20 percent chance um, that it's even accurate but we analyze that 20-day span and really look for major front movements extreme conditions wind changes pressure temperature and they're all weighted different and so i mean we can get into the 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 guts of it a little bit but our, our number one factor is temperature change and the more, so say you have like a front coming through and it's a, a 10 degree temperature drop from, from day to day, from high to high. That also probably will include some sort of uh, wind. The wind will come up and it'll come down. And then also there's a period of stability before that front. Uh, we calculate up to five days previous, and this, is, this all comes from the head of Jeff Sturgis, sometimes i don't understand I, I don't get how he knows this but i guess doing this for a living for 30 years gets you pretty close but we track like how many stable days before that front as well so like say you have in jeff's mind like deer can remember up to 5 days previous and so if you have like 3 stable days and then a big weather front Comes through, the more extreme conditions during the front, the better. The bigger temperature drop, the better. And then if you look at the end of that front, when the wind comes down, essentially those deer have missed feedings based on the extremeness of that. And then they're going to be more likely to gorge themselves in the next feeding after a front goes through. And they're going to be more apt to do that the more stable days previous to that big front. But then after they gorge themselves, there's a period where they might get too full and slow down for the feeding after that. And so that your rating comes down after that. So I'm yeah, that's I'm, a lot, but we can.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So, you know, yeah. you're talking at one of the things you said was that the high to high temperature is Does that mean more to you than a low to low comparison or, or can you use either?
3: it's more the um, the amount change in a given period our our algorithm looks from the high to high we're actually in the process of of tuning it to take into account also the low temperature of the mornings i just said that because that's what we look at there's no rhyme or reason why it's not low to low or high to high
0: well and the reason i ask is that as i'm thinking about these big temperature changes, i'm really thinking about the movement in relation to that front so one of the things you've always heard as long as you were hunting is, oh, you know, big front coming, the deer are going to move in front of it. They're going to, you know, they're going to move in advance of this front because they can feel that barometric pressure change or whatever the old wives tale was. And I've, yeah. and I've hunted that. And like I said, you know, here in the South, you'll know like, Hey, we're going to get a big front tonight. We're going to go to sleep. You know, when, when sunset this afternoon, it's going to be 70 degrees. But when we wake up in the morning, it's gonna be 35. And, you know, we're seeing this big, big fluctuation because of a front that's moving in overnight. And, you know, in your head, you're thinking, well, are the deer gonna move a lot this afternoon because this front's moving in? So let's talk about the relation to the front. You mentioned that they're, you know, maybe gonna put on that feedback right right after that big front. Tell me about your algorithm and, and go a little bit more in detail. Um, and what you're using in relation to those fronts,
3: we have this. Uh, we call it the cold front detection. We're tracking a few different things. Things are changing. It's hard because a front can last. Can come in over the course of a, day, a few hours. You see a temperature change um, within a few hours. It can also you can see a like a two day front right. Like the a temperature is dropping across across a full two days. It's it's. Kind of particular to what what it is, we track basically the dropping temperature, the change in dew point. we track the barometric pressure and the wind change and If you look at the graphs if you had a you know if you were looking at a graph of of the pressure after a front and then the wind, and those two generally cross that 's a good indication now sometimes there can be somewhat of a false positive to that because, and this is this is kind of from the mind of Sturgis, but he's a big proponent that it's all about food to the deer. And so the fact that like they feel the pressure different, that's not baked into our algorithm, whether they do or not, to be honest, I don't know. I'm not the expert, but we basically calculate that these deer are moving according to weather. And that... Barometric pressure is an indication of weather, but sometimes you'll have the the change without the accompanying weather. And so we're, our our formula is largely around the weather events that deer experience, how they affect their feeding, and that's kind of the primary layer. Again, the factors in order would be temperature, change, wind change, stability of prefront days, how intense was the front? Number of extreme weather conditions, and then moon also plays a factor. But as far as to the degree that there's light in the air, not necessarily that new moon or full moon. It's how much light and the times of day that that causes them to be out feeding.
1: That's something I've always wondered about because you hear this is full moon, so they're out feeding all night. But if it's a dense, cloudy night where even with the full moon you still can't see. You know, that logic goes out the window for me, but you've got people that just hang on to it so intently that they still think that the morning or the afternoon hunts are ruined by that full moon, even though it wasn't light outside.
3: Yeah, so one thing that we do is that we, if it's heavy clouds and in that moon, we don't account for it. So we're we're more under the, you know, understanding that it is, if there isn't that light, then it doesn't affect it. That's why we rate it it's weighted the lowest in our formula and it only creeps up into the algorithm when it truly you have those uh, you know bright nights and there's a couple other instances i don't i don't recall them all but i remember having the discussion with jeff and our our lead engineer it's been fascinating doing this for me because again like i said i'm not the expert but you learn a lot when you're, you're talking with jeff sturgis and the our head engineer and it goes from an idea that Jeff has used to actually like we have to account exact numbers for it, right? You can't just say a cold front goes through, okay, what does a cold front mean? So it's been extremely interesting.
0: It's also very interesting y'all are using mostly you said the the whitetails relation to to food and how these things temperature change, wind, the stability you know, the front intensity of the moon, how they change the whitetail's behavior in relation to food. And Jeff, you sound like you're, uh, you're from probably Michigan. Is that right? Uh, where, where are you hunting most of the time? I am, I am from Michigan. Is it my, my
3: Northern accent? <laughs> well, we'll um, forgive
0: you, you know, but Clint and I are hunting Alabama most of the time and, and down here, our rut is going to occur depending on where you are in the state. It could occur anytime from November uh, all the way to February and all stages in between, uh, where Clint hunts, it's going to be a mid January to early February type scenario. And, you know, as we're talking to you, y- y'all's rut is is probably already winding down if it's not already completely done. And so you can't say that what applies rut wise in Michigan is going to apply in Alabama. And so what about, you know, when we're trying to figure out the best time to hunt deer, in relation to the season. Okay. If we're talking early season, we're all used to deer that uh, are going to be on a feeding to bedding, bedding to feeding pattern. As hormones start to kick in and those deer are thinking about territories and they're thinking about mating, do these factors still play the same or do some of this go out the window?
3: So this is a good question. And this This is something that I've kind of learned and changed my behavior as I've kind of got into it deeper. First of all, the rut happens in a single place the same time every year, give or take a week. And now people don't always like hearing that or sometimes agree with it. But every year, the first doe that chases a buck, everybody's like the rut's on. And and the term the rut is, is given all sorts of different meanings. But if they did a lot of there's a lot of study of when peak estrus time is, and in a single place, it's generally the same time every year. So with that being said, our formula bakes in another layer. So consider weather one layer. The next layer on top of that is the rut and the phase of the rut. We have geolocated in the country roughly every 20 miles a specific rut time for your area based on a lot of different data that we've collected a lot of different scientists that have done studies on when the fawns are dropped and et cetera. And we're working on making that more accurate, but for the most part we have it pretty buttoned up. And so what we've seen is that basically you take that peak estrus date, and you can calculate all the phases of of the rut from both sides. And so we, you know, you start the pre-rut, I think it's roughly 14 days before then, and then you move into the rut lockdown phase, And then you have your peak rut, and then your post rut, and then 28 days later, roughly, um, you have a variation of the secondary rut that happens. And so our formula takes into account these different scenarios, and there is different ways to hunt each of them. For instance, like when you're in the pre-rut, you know, for us that's like third week of October-ish. You're hunting those cold front evening hunts prior, and then starting the third week of October, that's when you start to looking for some of those hot morning hunts. And then as rutting it increases through the rut lockdown, or right before the rut lockdown, you'll see, a, you know, it's, you can sit all day, you know, you see some, some more of those midday hunts, the bucks are cruising. You want to look for temperatures underneath 60 degrees, roughly. Um, else they'll move, you know, they'll move more after dark. And then all these are compounded by the fact that whether you're like hunting a core buck that's living on your property or a buck that is roaming, on uh, living on a neighbor's property. Um, that also influences when people say the rut's on or it's not, or this year the rut wasn't that great. A lot of times it it depends on the, what they're after and where that where that buck or whatever is is living and so our formula takes into account this whole rut planning schedule on a geo located right to your specific area and that's one of the things that i'm proud of i know some of the other apps and algorithms have kind of like a a rotating formula you can adjust it yourself but we have spent a lot of time in collecting it and so that's our goal is to kind of really bake in these two layers that gives you kind of like not just the when, but also a strategy with it and we call that in our app we call it whitetail strategy 365 and jeff gives jeff sturgis every time of the year um, a video of like what are the deer doing this time of year especially for your area how you should be hunting them etc that's
0: really really interesting because like you said it's very dependent on where you are it's hyper local even i mean I, i think of a property that i hunted near Hertzboro, Alabama. And we were dealing with deer. We were, had a very large property that we hunted and we had deer that rutted on two distinct periods. And some of them rutted in November and some of them rutted in January. Everybody knew it. I mean, but if you looked at that, uh, and it was because of the where those deer were stocked from. And if you look at the state of Alabama, I think we have five distinct rutting zones in Alabama. The Bankhead National Forest, for example, they start rutting in November. And like, say down in the the Black Belt, Southern Alabama, you're getting that even February rut. And so that's super cool, man. <laughs> that's a lot of data yeah, to have to compile. Y'all were,
3: <laughs> y'all were hard to, we spent 80% of our time on, you know, below Tennessee because deer herds are imported, you know, to some extent. And, and you can have deer in one county two months later than the, the county right next to it, right? Yeah. And so... That's why we, we can't be super specific, but it's different. It's a challenge. But the, it's true,
0: the, though. I mean, if, yeah. it, and I don't know about Clint's area, but where I hunted in South Alabama, you could pretty much set your watch around January 18th and somewhere in there, give, give or take a few days. That was when you needed to take off from work. And that was when you needed to try to get your time in the woods. But like I say, down in South Florida, you know, their rut is in what, August? So it's very, very interesting that you guys incorporated that that geolocation feature in and then are tying that in with, I guess, these gestation periods and, and uh, the research that they've taken from uh, the fetal analysis that the states do. That is uh, that's super cool. So you guys are taking weather into account. We'll kind of review a little bit here. You're taking weather into account. You're taking rut period into account. You were talking about seeing deer all day long you know when it's that peak i guess that peak chase period you just kind of need to hunt as much as you can during that period what about post-rut when those deer kind of now it's off their mind does it switch back to kind of an early season type of calculation where it's really all about the weather or is there are there other factors that play into you know the best time of day to hunt
3: to be honest you know you'll see the you'll see the overall activity decline, right? I think a lot of the bucks, you know, they've been out chasing. You can see, sometimes you'll see them go back to like an evening food, kind of re, regenerating themselves on, on what green they can find and some of the evening sits. But still we're reliant on, we rely on weather during this period. So it's a harder time to hunt, but if you still hunt the fronts, um, like I'm I'm looking at snow out the window right now, I hunted this morning and I probably should have been on the other side of the front, but today was the only day that I had. We primarily are still hunting the fronts in post, but honestly, this is one piece of our algorithm that we're working on improving. You know, we're not, I'm not saying that we're best at everything yet but it is creating more granular approaches in the post-rut. I, I really feel like we've done, spent a lot of time during the the pre, the lockdowns and the peak rut. It's weird because like gun season, and this is where what we've also done is our third layer on top of this is you have seasons, right? For instance, our gun season is November 15. And so everybody gets out there, pushes the deer all around, and now you add a post-rut with the deer going crazy the first two days of gun season you might as well throw the book out the window at that point for at least a few days and so what we've done is we've baked in for most states the primary seasons to be able to add a third layer of hunting pressure not to get away from the poster up but this also like informs you know people say the october lull really the, that time it's kind of a, a, in my opinion, a bad name for it because it's usually because you see a lot of hunting pressure right on early season. And then you'll see them go nocturnal because they've been spooked and um, a lot of things like that. But if you have a good property that you let other people scare the deer, but yours is the safe haven haven and you're only hunting good winds, you can still have a lot of daylight activity during the October. So I think
1: for us, it's the, it's the December lull, yep. have they call it it's around that, here. Okay. But I think
3: <laughs> yeah, In every location it has a different name, but it's always followed by the lull. The lull, yeah. <laughs> so for better or worse, like in our, in our strategy section, we call it the lull. Um, but I, but we're kind of like analyzing, is that the right term? Because generally people like the hunting pressure goes up, but what if you don't have hunting pressure and you don't put a bunch of pressure on it? That one's a hard one to add in.
0: Well, and it's like you say, though, I mean, the whole reason that you're going into this analysis is, I mean, some guys and some guys have the time and some guys just want to spend as much time as they can in the woods. And, uh, you know, at a time in my life, that was me for sure. But I've definitely noticed on properties that I had total control over that the less I hunted them, the more successful I was. And that's hard to do and be confident in because you're, you're thinking, Hey, I could go hunting today, but the cards really aren't stacked in your favor. And it's like Clint and I were talking earlier in the show that that's the day you need to go duck hunting, leave your deer alone or go fishing or do something for your wife, make her happy. So that when the card is, uh, the cards are stacked in your favor, you're saying I'm today's the day I'm going take off of work, calling sick, do whatever you need to do. To get in the woods, it definitely does have an effect. the The pressure is is a big part of it. It's almost like that lull is really a combination of combination of pressure and the lack of any real rut factors playing on the deer herd. So you've got the most pressure you've had all season. You've got no rut factors really affecting that deer movement. Now add to that some some warm temperatures, and you could just as well do do something around the house.
3: And there's a thing called the, and Jeff Sturgis coined this, the annual whitetail shift is when they're changing their, their feeding patterns and everybody wonders why. And at least around here in September, they have all these big bucks and then October comes around and where'd they go and they're moving their food sources. And so there's a lot of factors that they all play into it and you kind of got to spend some time. We're hoping to help educate people. I want people to know their area to understand because like me I got three little kids I got three three and under you know like you have to plan your you got to choose the the days that are good and you can't hunt every day Um, but where my dad he loves to hunt and whether he might sit some more and not care as much about exactly the right time that's his choice and he loves it and I can't tell people not to do that either but I know Jeff Sturgis he talks quite a bit about you blow out a few deer early season. Then all of a sudden your big 100% cold front hunts, the third week of October for us, they become 60% hunts because you already blew some deer out, put your scent in the woods. And that's where like too much pressure on your own land can, can hurt some of those really awesome opportunities.
0: Yeah. You know, have you guys noticed anything in the data that you're obviously compiling and you're obviously crunching a lot of data from a lot of different variables. Have you noticed anything that points to a time of day that deer are most active? I mean, for example, we all know that deer are, or we think we know that deer are most active at dawn and at dusk, but is there anything that you found that points to something different? I mean, I know the biggest deer I ever killed uh, i shot him at 11 o'clock in the morning and i hunted that time only because of a a moon phase chart that said that peak movement period was going to be from nine until noon and i was like i didn't have anything else to do so i was like i'll go hunt and there he was what have you found with regards to that
3: well this is where we've in our version two of our algorithm we've We've changed it because the answer to your question depends more on where you're hunting. If you're hunting a field edge versus a bedding area, like if the deer are going to be moving in the morning, we originally had a, Okay, right at dawn, you're going to have you know more movement. For instance, Jeff, he's killed most of his biggest bucks on a cold front morning at 10 a.m., where the the bucks are checking the bedding areas, and so it all it all depends in relation to where you're you're at because if they're moving from x x to y you could see him if you're in you know in the woods away you know earlier on and then out and so to answer that question it's it really depends on where you're where you're hunting them at
0: so jeff just to recap a little bit here i thought you did a good job of breaking down best times to hunt in relation to the season i mean it, it sounds a lot like the science is pointing towards the weather, early season, post-rut, those weather patterns are still gonna have an effect in the pre-rut and during the rut, but then you have the added layer of the rut in your area and how that affects deer movement um, during those times. Talking about digging back into the weather a little bit, I think as hunters, we've all heard this, is that some guys really love to hunt in the rain. Some guys hate to hunt in the rain. Some guys really, really hate when it's blowing really high wind days. Me personally, I've had really good success hunting at very particular types of spots when the, when the wind is just blowing super hard. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about those extreme weather events, precipitation and wind specifically. Is there anything in the science that's pointing to those extreme Weather events being good or bad times to hunt deer.
3: So when you talk about rain, for instance, the lighter, the lighter to mid end of the rain, I would say are secondary in the formula. Where if the front has come through and you're hunting the front or however you're hunting, we don't adjust for if there's like light or or mid rain, I would call it. But what we do have seen is that when you talk about heavy. To extreme conditions, if you're talking about winds in the 25 plus mile an hour, heavy rain, heavy snow, heavy sleet, those things again will cause deer to, uh, to miss feedings or just you know feed locally and, and bedding or, or wherever they're at um, as opposed to go out and get the food and so th- those will cause them to wait until those are done and so I would say those are a hindrance. Extreme conditions, but in the case of wind, for instance, that's another one, like you said, where it depends on where you're at, because like we opening day on gun season here this year was like 30 mile an hour winds, and across the board, you'd see a lot lower numbers um, of people seeing them on average. But you know, you look at where they were at, it doesn't mean the deer vanish. it means that they're going to be where they're protected more. and so if you're hunting those areas. I think they're still gonna be in kind of a slower cadence, but that doesn't mean you can't have some good luck if there's a 20 mile an hour wind in in the deep woods where you're hunting and it's only being realized as a seven mile an hour wind because it's so, just based on uh, the amount of cover. I I would say you're more, that's our formula. It'd be hard to give you an accurate one if you have the change of exactly where you're at as opposed to what's forecasted for your area. That's interesting. Um, done,
0: like you say, uh, on the extreme side of wind, like, and the, like, the anecdotal evidence agrees. If you go to probably any hunting club, uh, across, you know, the state of Alabama on, on a high wind day, there's going to be less deer killed than on a nice, pleasant, steady wind afternoon. I personally have experienced, you know, one hunt really, comes to mind for me. We had a very strong cold front that came in, and I went and hunted in an area that I'd wanted to hunt, but I didn't know exactly where where I wanted to get in there. And so I went in on a. The wind was blowing super. I think it was probably at least twenty miles an hour that morning. Very cold, and I went into an area and I jumped five or six deer getting to where I wanted to get to. Was hunting along the edge of an of a cutover and there was a really thick area to the edge of that climbed a tree and when i got my stand settled uh daylight was just coming up i really didn't have a lot of confidence and as i as i I'll just never forget this as i loaded the shell into my gun i looked you basically kind of looked past my gun and there was a rack staring at me <laughs> like 40 yards away and and i just froze and i thought man you know there's that's a nice deer And it just kept staring at me and staring at me. And I thought for sure, you know, it was, it had pegged me in the tree and probably 15 minutes elapsed. I never saw the rack move at all. And then all of a sudden it just twisted. And like, for like 30 minutes, this deer just laid there and what the deer was bedded down. I didn't realize it at the time, but finally he stood up, he walked 20 yards over to uh, an oak tree that was dropping and started feeding and I shot him right there. And that was telltale for me because I had gotten to within 40 yards of that deer in his bed, climbed a tree with a with a tree climber, made a ton of noise. Uh, and he just couldn't hear me because the wind was blowing so hard. But he was not going to go probably. He's probably going to go to that oak tree feed and then go right back to where he was and lay down. That sticks out in my mind. Is that I don't think there's any way you can incorporate something like that into into an algorithm necessarily that's going to apply but you're taking all this information and and really being able to help point these hunters in the right direction so that they can say all right today's one of these extreme events i either need to hunt or i need to go to these particular areas if that's what i'm hearing
3: yeah and this is where it's none of this is like rocket science and it's not magic it's like we want to give something To where if you if you follow what we're doing, that we can help hunters increase their success thirty maybe forty percent more of the time, right? That if if they're hunting on the days when we say, and not hunting on the days when they're bad, that that we can hopefully just make better use of people's time. If they're gonna you know, we'd all love to be in the field every day, I think, but to be able to pick the days that are best and hopefully have better luck on those days over the course of time that's what we're all about our family and our relationships and our family have been built on the outdoors and i i this is the thing i strongly believe in is is that it's created these bonds and just depending on that you know whether you're hunting for meat or a rack or whatever um just the fact that you do it with other people and create relationships over something outdoors is is awesome yeah, um, I wouldn't trade trade that for any formula in the world or app, for
0: yeah. that matter. Well, we talked about that in, in the beginning of the show. Clint had some success on opening weekend down here, and he was able to take his, his young son and and go do that with him. And you know, I was asking Clint, you know, what did you do to get your son into it? And and he was just talking about making it fun. And that's the, what it boils down to: is that we some of us really love to sit in the woods, no matter what we see. But I think. All of us love to sit in the woods when we're seeing, seeing animals <laughs> yeah. and enjoying the game around us. And, and that's what it sounds like you guys are doing, but you're doing it with a ton of data. You're making this simple, you're making a complicated thing that people really learn to do over a lifetime of hunting. You talk to a really good hunter who's been doing this for years. He knows these different variables somewhat by heart. And that's what you've done. You've taken Jeff Sturgis and you've basically mined his brain for that data and then plugged it into something that can stack that deck in your favor. You know, you mentioned some of the features. Is there anything new with, with HuntWise this season coming up?
3: What we've really focused on this year was um, uh, not just the HuntCast 2.0 and the Whitetail Strategy 365. We purchased a new map layer because a lot of the people were having trouble with outdated maps and it's only as good as the source they use. And so we integrated eight new base map layers, um, including um, USGS topo maps. Um, I think there's three or four topo maps. And then we have three or four satellite um, maps. And so there's a lot better updated satellite imagery, which has been uh, a great feature that people have loved. And then also for gaining access, you can click on a landowner parcel and search phone records for that landowner. Um, we've used this, a couple of people that I know of been able to get amazing hunting property just by being able to call and uh, make a connection with a landowner um, over getting access. And then something that we're working on um, the rest of this year and in the next year is the ability to manage properties collectively with uh, your buddies or a, a hunting group um, where you can collaborate um, as you're putting markers down, it'll show up on their map and vice versa. And so you can really, um, for instance, if someone puts up a stand, it would notify you, hey, they put up a stand and show you right where it was. I feel like land management is just stepping into its own people with leases, trying to do food plots and really manage a small amount of deer land. And so we want to make tools that allow you to do that with other people, too. Those are a couple of things that are coming up.
0: Well, that's really cool. I, I suppose if folks want to take a look at HuntWise, uh, they can just go, you, you guys for sale in the, in the app store. How do they pick it up?
3: Yep. You can go um, iOS, Android, or web. Just type in HuntWise. You can sign up for yeah, any of those methods on the app stores. Yeah, good luck. I, we've had hunters that have made it and have spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, but we also really enjoy feedback, too, because that's how we get better, and so I encourage people to try it, and then give us a shout with your thoughts on it, and how we can make it better. I
0: love that, Jeff. Well, thanks for sharing uh, some info with us today. We've, we've definitely enjoyed the interview, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. Next time, we got a question on, uh, on some deer movement activity. I, c- I can't wait to see where the data starts to point you guys and how your algorithms going to change. I'll look forward to reviewing that again. with you soon?
3: Let's do it. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Clint, as you can tell, I get, I get pretty nerdy with all this stuff, man. I, I, it's exciting to me that someone has compiled through a whole bunch more data than just my own, a whole bunch of variables into kind of doing what I was trying to do on my own and don't have the time to do now, <laughs> you know, I used to really get into analyzing all this stuff and, um, they've, they've pretty much taken the the heavy lifting out of that. What'd you learn? What was your favorite part of the show or what'd you take away from today? Just,
1: there's a lot more mitigating factors than, you know, what we're used to thinking about. You know, it's not just about the wind. It's not just about the moon. You know, there's so much more that can come into play and, you know, it's not that we don't know it, but it's just, it's hard to, um, process it all in a way that, helps you feel good about whatever decision you make. So it's nice to have this to to lean on.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think for me, it was, I really liked the fact that they were, well, one thing that made me feel good is that the moon was like the lowest rung, you know, the, the lowest contributing factor in the, in the terms of the weather uh, in the deer movement. Uh, because I, I know I just I lose a lot of confidence uh, when it's a full moon period. And it sounds like if I've got the other weather, factors in play right Then just go hunt you know but the the thing that I, I really keyed in on what they were talking about is that is pressure you know pressure on your property and the fact that that is that that's something you can't build an algorithm for is the amount of pressure you put on a property but we talk to guys all the time that want to buy land and they you know they say I, I need this much land and they, they've got a, a acreage number that they've just they've got to hit that number for some reason and I think most of the time it's just, it's a pressure thing. They feel like I've got more room to hunt so I can hunt more effectively. But with something like this and learning when the best times to hunt are not and not hunting when it's not good, give you the ability to confidently go do something else. It doesn't mean you don't hunt at all. Just maybe just don't hunt deer on, on your place that day. Maybe that's the day you need to go put the boat in the water or, uh, that's the day you need to go squirrel hunt uh, or, or go try a public land spot or, you know, something along those lines. And that just gets back to how important location is when you're talking about buying a piece of land is you might be the sanctuary within a, a thousand acre area. If you treat your property right, you don't need a whole lot of acreage to do that.
1: Joe, speaking of the land, how's your market been over there?
0: It's been hot and heavy, man. I mean, the biggest problem is, has been finding enough properties to have on the market everything we've we've got out there is it's moving pretty quick it's moving for what we're asking for it and uh still a ton of people interested in in buying land for a lot of the reasons we've talked about before what about you
1: it's been the same we're wide open uh just trying to pick up as much inventory as we can to satisfy the demand that we're we're running into everywhere And you know i expect it to stay hot and heavy all the way through the end of the year. And hopefully we'll keep rolling into next year as long as these interest rates stay low and don't have any major movements in the tax treatment of real estate next year. I think everything will stay, stay moving and moving well.
0: Yeah. You know, we just keep our fingers crossed that the market stays as good as it is. And, uh, but you know, trees don't grow to the sky, that's for sure. So gotta make some moves. If you're thinking about making a move right now is a great time to do it. That's a fact. Folks, that is going to wrap it up this week. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you guys stay safe out there. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we will talk to you the next go-round. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at at proslandhunting.com or call us at 855 NLR Land. And also brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.